we often use. Consistency is an excuse for not being able to innovate a lot and to do different things a lot. When you think about it, there's not a great reason necessarily for consistency. And it's really just another way of saying, oh, we should do this because it's the way we've always done it. It's the way we do it in all the other countries. If there's never been a good reason for us to accept from the business, why should we accept that in compliance? Global companies face unprecedented risks and challenges in today's economy. To mitigate these legal and economic risks, companies are rapidly embracing and elevating the importance of robust ethics and compliance programs to promote positive corporate citizenship. On Corruption, Crime and Compliance, you'll hear from industry leaders and insiders about how to create effective ethics and compliance programs that will mitigate risks and maximize financial performance. Here's your host, Michael Volkov. Well, hello, everyone. Today's a special week for corruption, crime, and compliance. Not that we're going to engage in corrupt behavior, but we have an absolutely terrific guest, Mary Shirley, who I'm sure you all know from Great Women in Compliance, now working at Massimo in California, and just came out with a really fantastic book. I can't think of a more exciting person to speak to than Mary Shirley. Mary, welcome and congratulations on your new book. Thank you so much for the warm and kind introduction, Mike. It's such a pleasure to be here and I really appreciate you. Well, Mary, you and I crossed paths years ago at Fresenius. I was doing some work with them and through a common friend, Lisa Estrada was brought in to do some work and I know you were there for many years. Now you're at a really interesting company, Massimo, which is very well known in the medical device field in California. First off, welcome to California. How do you like living in California? I love it, Mike. I'm a pedestrian and being able to walk to and from work is amazing. So I'm enjoying the healthier lifestyle, I think it's fair to say. I'm not loving the sticker shock prices, though. Cost of living is a little bit offensive, but if I were to reframe it, I would say in many respects, I feel like you actually do get what you pay for in California. So I'm going to look at it from that angle. Yeah. Well, I lived for 50 years on the East Coast. And when I got out to California, I always told people, why did I spend 50 years on the East Coast? <laughs> Stuck in Washington, D.C. and snowstorms and whatnot. And I love life out here. It's a great place. It's just nice because the weather's great. But congratulations. You just started working recently at Massimo, but tell us about the new book. I'm really excited about it. And we've also posted on our blog a link for people to buy it from Amazon. I will tell you that I wrote a book a long time ago, and I still get payments from Amazon of some months, like 45 cents, 75 cents. <laughs> so my book is skyrocketing to fame. But I love seeing those 45 cent payments. Now, yours is going to be a lot different, but tell us about the book Level Up, and it really, I'm sure, is going to spark a conversation. Thank you so much for the opportunity. What I really wanted to do was find a way to bridge a gap in the space, something that people hadn't already written about before in the existing literature. And we've already got a lot of great stuff, including from yourself as resources in the field. What I thought may have been missing may have been the practical ideas side. So we've got a lot when it comes to the theory and the academics of compliance, almost the textbook type stuff. And then we've got 
resources like Christy Grant Hart's Wildly series, which is yeah, 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 how to really advance yourself as a professional, how to be successful as an employee in the workplace. But what we didn't have so much of that I hoped to achieve with this book was tangible, actionable examples. But the important part of this was there had to be examples that people could implement at little to no cost, because that is really reflective of the typical compliance officer, someone who doesn't have a whole lot of budget at their disposal and needs to be able to prove their worth and ROI for just existing as people in the workplace. That was the idea. And also taking into account, most of us don't also happen to be graphic designers off to the side. Most of us don't also have to be behavioral scientists. Or if you're one or the other of those, you're probably not both of those as well. And some of us, like myself, aren't either. So they had to be ideas that the person with the average compliance skill set would be able to implement without too much trouble. And that was the idea or the concept of the book. So it was bringing together novel, innovative, and trailblazing ideas to advance your compliance program. Here's what I love about that, just to start off. I can remember 20 years ago, I did a risk assessment, one of the first ones that I did, and I was so idealistic. I had all these recommendations, and I thought everybody's just going to sing Kumbaya and start implementing everything. Then I ran into, let's call it the reality brick wall, which <laughs> is, and I learned a lesson, and I'm sure you can help us with this, is that people resist change. And it's hard to move. We all have our expressions to turn an aircraft carrier around and start to do things differently. Then I realized through the years, and you use this phrase, I heard it first years ago from Dan Chapman down in Houston which was win-wins. You look for win-wins, Mike, and you look for the small things that you can do to start to build credibility, and you look for relationships and natural partners that you need to leverage together. I will say 20 years ago, there were people who were still wrestling with should legal be independent of compliance. And I always said, you know what, I'm really getting over the structural issue, and I always just look for people and functions that. But what I love about the approach is, and I've always been sort of focused on finding practical solutions that can advance the cause here and communication skills that can work better. But what happens to the compliance professions? We're all so idealistic and we want to do the right thing, but we realize that not everybody's on the same page. So how do we build relationships and also start to do things when you're sitting in a company with all your great ideas? One of the things that I learned way later than I wish I had was that when you involve people in the conceptualizing aspect, so when you're building an initiative in compliance, if you consult with the business at an earlier stage and they feel part of it and you're also addressing challenges that they helpfully bring up before you've finish building the initiative, you're in a much better position to get buy-in when you eventually do the implementation because people are essentially buying in as they're part of it. One of the things that I recommend in the book is building an internal compliance advisory board, putting together folks who don't necessarily want to be in the compliance department, but they're really interested in 
their stake in what happens to their teams and the organization when compliance initiatives are rolled out. So putting together a little task force of folks that you can run things by for ideas at a very early stage. The mistake I used to make was I used to think that it was enough to work on a compliance initiative and then choose like a pilot test country. And it would often be a safe country like Canada, for example, and see how things go. But what I've learned is that it's so much better to involve the business, especially the business that's really on the receiving end of the particular initiative, right from the very start. So if you can invite them to a kickoff meeting, for example, even if it's just to listen and then throw up a challenge, if they see something that would work with operationalizing the idea, that's a good way to work with people in a different way than at least I traditionally had. I know there'll be some smart folks out there who intuitively know that this is a good thing to do and already do it. And I guess I'd make that same caveat with the book is that while I tried to do novel ideas, there will certainly be some things that some folks have already thought of, but I hope they'll find other ideas in the book that they haven't yet tried. I get a lot of calls about, okay, how do I solve, you know, they say there's no ROI on this. I can't get support for this. They say this, they say that. But I want to mention one thing. I think your idea of an internal committee is always a great idea. Because it brings stakeholders together. I found it's more important in an organization when you have to educate senior management and then you have to speak to them through the committee. So it's not just, here's Mary Shirley, the chief compliance officer, saying something. Here's Mary Shirley with a group of people who are saying Mm -hmm. something. But then I've gotten the question, which is, okay, our CEO is not on board. We have to educate the CEO. And then I said, that's going to add two to three years to the process. You've got to have a committee that then speaks to the CEO and you need strength in numbers. It just means it's going to take longer. So I love the committee idea. I think that's great. And I also just love your thought of let's get the business on board and solve some of their problems. What is it that's not working from your standpoint that we can help you with? And you'll often get hey, it takes too long for us to get this third party on board and it takes two months. Can you help us? I think you can. Yeah. But with the business, how do you like bring them on board, but also get them to feel vested in something that's going to require a little bit more time on their part? Yeah. I think one of the best ways that I've found to do this is to utilize your compliance week as a two-week feedback mechanism. Basically, you're asking people to do work for you, right? They're basically being your consultants when you're getting feedback from them. Why not turn it into something fun? Let's say, for example, to your point, you want feedback on the due diligence process. What angle that is most frustrating to people? What can you do for a gap analysis? So for Compliance Week, you can set something up that is as unsophisticated as a whiteboard and a marker, has a little compliance trinket giveaways, you know, little charge key type things, swag. And just have a question up on the board, which says, what is your biggest frustration with the due diligence process? Or let's say, for example, you want to find out whether your reputation as being the sheriff of the company has changed to being the genuine business partner and enabler. So your question on the whiteboard might be, what is the first word you think of when you hear the word compliance or when you think of the compliance team? And I remember in the past, it was super cute. One person put up the word friend, which I thought was adorable. And then the word no was put up as well. And I found this really interesting because I just joined a compliance department where the region was particularly proud of the fact that they felt like 
they had a very advanced, mature compliance program, and the rest of us were running a program that was not as good as theirs. I thought, this will bring you down a notch, that sort of awareness. And it's a great gap analysis tool because it allows you to be humble about the fact that even if you've, say, trained on something a million times or you've tried to adjust the reputation of the compliance department, it lets you know when there's still more work to be done. And it doesn't allow you to pat yourself on the back and say, I feel like I've done a really good job about this, when in actual fact, there's still more movement to go. And if you were ever scrutinized by the government, this is the kind of information that they're going to learn about. So isn't it better that you learn about it earlier rather than later? I agree with that. But when you're speaking and getting people involved through, let's say, Compliance Week, one other idea, and I don't know if you've seen this much, I've seen people hand out awards on a regular basis for ethics and compliance accomplishment. And they have a picture taken with the CEO. It's published through the newsletter. People feel very proud of those types of things. To me, that was one other way to sort of push the ethics message. Have you seen that or have you used that ever? A really awesome idea that I just heard of recently from a friend of mine, Samantha Callan, who's a chief compliance officer at Stellar Health, which is based out in New York. Instead of taking just the traditional idea of giving a reward to someone who had exhibited our ideal behaviors and role modeled them, and I think this was a best practice when it came to cybersecurity, what Sam did was not just give a reward to the star team member, but the entire rest of that individual's team also got a reward, something like that was a team meal out together. And I love that concept because what it meant was, yep, we're giving recognition to the champion, but we're also creating this really positive feeling throughout the rest of the team, getting people talking about why is it that we're all getting rewarded for this, more positive attention to the person who got us this, then being able to thank the gentleman for his good behavior that resulted in the whole team benefiting. I think that's a terrific idea because then it's not just about the one person, it's about group. It was interesting. I was talking to a salesperson, one of those aggressive salespersons in the industry. It was interesting. And I said, in the end, what kind of model have you found works better? Giving a commission based upon an individual's performance or having a group, a team, and then based upon that team's performance. And he, after 40 years of sales experience, said, absolutely the team experience. You may have the one person who's a great But when you bring the team together, and yes, one person may do more than another, but at least they're operating in a team. And it gets back to one of my pet issues, which is, look, people are looking for community. They're looking for a feeling of belonging to a group. And Samantha's idea was that, like, how do we foster sort of a more togetherness type of feeling within the company related to the business and related to compliance? Yeah, I think that's a good question in the advancement of the incentives angle of our compliance programs is probably going to play a big role in that. I think companies have struggled with being able to incorporate incentives into the performance management angle of their program. Novartis is one company that I'm aware of that after their issues, their compliance issues, they seem to have achieved it. But there are many pragmatic issues, I think, with trying to put in place a fair system. At this point, I think it's the way forward, and I think there's still a lot of work that we can do to perfect this area of our programs, is really getting that 
community feel. One of the things that we've got to be careful of, I think, as compliance officers is that when you engage in your initiative, sometimes things can be a bit lame to the business. And so if you go too far down one road where, you know, you're almost laughable or it's cringeworthy, you do yourself more harm than good, right? So we really have a very difficult job as compliance officers because on the one hand, we want to show that we're fun and we're human and we're not the sheriff. But on the other, if we do things that are considered to be too inappropriate or too silly, then we'll get mocked for it and we'll be worse off than if we'd never tried to adjust our reputations at all. I think that's true because when I hear about certain sweeps that or whatever, some programs, and I could just imagine cynical business people saying, you know what, that's all well and good, but we're serious business here. We got to do this, that, and the other. We don't have time for Jeopardy or whatever it might be, you know, some game show or something like that. I think that the way you build credibility is problem solving, always problem solving and thinking about that with practical ways to make their life easier. I will tell you at your old company, at one point, I remember in one jurisdiction, one of your compliance team there came up with an idea to shorten documentation requirements and came up with a form and sat down with the business. They put it together themselves and the business loved it. They loved it and they used it all the time because to your point, they were there at the creation. And you guys in that, your former company, were very willing to listen and work with them. And it was a culture that you had there, which I was really impressed with. So that's a great example of how you took something that's doable. What's the cost? It's your time. To me, the other point is I've seen very successful people who are on the ground being local compliance officers, working with that region or that country in a global system, doing things that you're talking about. Do you see that as well? Yeah, 100%. As someone who's worked in both the regional areas of a compliance program versus the centralized global roles, there can be an awful lot of frustration, I think, when you're in a regional role and you feel too hamstrung by the global team when you don't have enough freedom to be able to do what you want to do. And so I think if I had a magic wand, it would be to let the regional folks do a bit more in much of our space. We often use consistency as an excuse for not being able to innovate a lot and to do different things a lot. When you think about it, there's not a great reason necessarily for consistency. And it's really just another way of saying, oh, we should do this because it's the way we've always done it. It's the way we do it in all the other countries. If there's never been a good reason for us to accept from the business, why should we accept that in compliance? So if I could have a wish, it would be to entrust local and regional compliance teams with the fact that they are knowledgeable, they are competent, they know the business culture of that area, they know the local culture of that area. So why not allow them a bit more freedom or autonomy to really customize the compliance program and not be so limited by what the global team, who simply doesn't have the same perspectives, may be seeing. Interesting. Interesting. Going back to your book, what other suggestions or practical ideas do you have when dealing with, let's say, human resources or dealing with those issues? Were there any, and are there any other tips or some of your favorites that you want to definitely highlight for us and for listeners so they can 
understand what they're getting with the book. So a quick one for HR is if there is no pre-existing guideline for how to conduct investigations, it may be helpful to offer to do some training for HR. I often find that they are very gracious about accepting some ideas from the legal and compliance investigation specialists to help them because they're so skilled in their area, but they don't necessarily get taught best practices for investigation. So offering to do that. And then my favorite idea of all, I think, which segues nicely into what you and I were talking about offline, which is CEOs, is that something that we've always done in compliance as a way to demonstrably show tone from the top has been to involve your CEO in your compliance training, usually at the beginning, some kind of statement from them in a headshot or even a video that talks about why compliance is important, that they stand behind it, please complete this training on time, that kind of thing. But I'll ask you to think about this in terms of opportunity cost. For every minute that our staff have reading or listening to the CEO talking about that kind of thing, that's one minute that we take away from them doing their day jobs. It's very expensive. It's a lot of time. And it also doesn't add much value because if you think about it, the CEO's presence just by its very nature shows that they stand behind it. They think compliance is important. So if you take that message away by, in terms of overtly or explicitly stating it and instead use that time more usefully as a tone from the top initiative, think about turning your CEO into an adjunct professor of compliance and have them teach on a learning objective in that one minute instead. Or choose a really nice quote that you ask them to craft based on, for example, what the values of the company mean to them that you may otherwise be teaching on the course in a different way. So think about how you can use your leaders in the organization. And I would encourage you to think beyond your CEO. The reason being that the CEO is somebody that seems so far away to many of us. So many of us haven't met the CEO. We wouldn't really know them if we bumped into them at the airport. Think about using leaders from all around the organization, get some diversity in the appearances of these influencers and use them to teach learning points, which in and of itself demonstrates tone from the top just by their very presence and commitment to the cause. That's a terrific idea. Would you recommend that, let's say you're in a global company and you're at a region and have the regional business head do that for your training programs in that region or whatever. Is that what you're saying is use somebody like that to be your messenger? Absolutely, but also even in your global training. So thinking about, let's say you have an organization with a global CEO, then think about bringing in, let's say you've got four regional heads, different areas, maybe the CEO of Asia Pacific, bring them in to teach on antitrust for a little bit, for example, bring someone else in to teach on maybe harassment or something else that you've chosen that's appropriate. Think about matching the topic up to the person for whatever reason. Each person has different passions and things, so that really is something that they can speak passionately about or use their own example to discuss. Conflicts of interest is a great one because a lot of our CEOs are very senior and they do things like sit on boards and other places so they can talk about their additional employment and roles outside of the organization. So I recommend going everywhere and changing it up so that next year you might choose different leaders and you might do something different. Instead of doing a video one year, you might choose to get caricatures 
obviously not offensive ones, draw the faces. Yeah. The CEOs then have speech bubbles coming out so that it's just text instead of video to save their time. Yeah, that's great. Those are all great solutions. I know the standard CEO comment that's videotaped and then played. And I think it's a great idea to sort of think outside the box in terms of who can do that. One other idea, and I mentioned this to you before, I just was working with a client and did an assessment of the client. And I was so impressed by a CEO. This was a small organization, but the ability of a CEO to actually communicate and then have a message that actually permeates the entire organization and to see it in action with a culture where I know that's the best control they have because they all cite the CEO. And what was the number one trait that they said? Compassion and empathy and integrity. What a beautiful statement. I mean, I was really moved by that statement, but how do we translate that? The reason I love your book is because they're ideas, but they're also practical ideas and symbolic action is important. People react to symbolic actions when they see symbols moved in one way or another. Instead of saying, oh, I need a third-party automated platform and I got to get it. Here's my budget support. Let's find those ideas that move the ball, like you're saying. Can it really help and even the culture area in spreading the message of compliance? What's been your experience with that? So the first thing that comes to mind for me is a former CEO of mine who was kind enough to let me use this example in the book, after some compliance issues, he initiated an idea that for every single slide deck that the organization presented, there had to be a we all own compliance slide talked about by the presenter, whether it was a compliance presentation or not. So everyone in the business had to speak on compliance in every presentation. That was good. What I realized was that because the initiative had come from the CEO and not compliance, people bought into it so much faster, I felt, than initiatives that came out of compliance. So one of the ideas in the book is to invite your CEO to helm a compliance initiative. What would they like to do to be a part of the compliance program? So we built on this initiative further by creating little workshops to help managers really give their own personal meaning and anecdotes to what we all learn compliance really means for them. And so then compliance was able to have reasons to talk about it more. Another example that I really like comes from the CEO of 3M. This individual wrote a LinkedIn post last year. I'll just read it out if that's all right, yes. uh, Mike, because I think it's yeah. a good one. So the gentleman's name is Mike Roman. And in September 2022, he put a post up on LinkedIn, which said this, being an ethical company committed to compliance means 3M innovation starts with bedrock principles, treating others with respect, following the rules and doing things the right way. It's who we are. From our first days in 1902 to today, 3M has live and promote a culture of ethics and compliance. This month, we celebrate our commitment to doing important work guided by a common purpose, promise and principles that make us a strong and ethical company. Across our company and around the world, 3M is a proud of what we make and even prouder of how we make it. Hashtag proud 3M. Now at the time, I think that was particularly impressive because the company didn't seem to be in any compliance trouble. But since that time, 3M has recently settled some FCPA issues. 
So I would say that's actually the common link between the two CEO initiatives that I just mentioned, this gentleman taking it upon himself to do a LinkedIn post, which I love, and the previous CEO that I spoke of in the wheel on compliance slide. The commonality between these two CEOs is that they did these things in the midst of or, or after some compliance issues. So what I would love to see and what I would urge your listenership to think about is, can we get a CEO doing one of these initiatives when the company is not in trouble, just doing it because it really is shining a guiding light and being a great role model for time from the top? Wow. That's a terrific quote. It's a terrific observation. I think we should end it there because we ended on such a beautiful high note. So I appreciate that, Mary. It's always an inspiration to speak to you. There are certain people in compliance that I call the good-hearted, good souls of effective compliance. By the way, congratulations on the book. Congratulations on your job. And I hear you're teaching soon at Fordham, which I think is fantastic. I know they've been putting more efforts into their compliance educational program as part of the law school, I believe. So I'm really happy for that. If people want to get in touch with you after they buy the book, well, first off, they buy the book where on Amazon.com? Absolutely. It's on Amazon. If you are a compliance department looking to order a larger order for your compliance summit or compliance week or retreat, or you would like to stock it at your booth, we can take bulk orders directly and give you a discount or mates rates, as we say in New Zealand. <laughs> you also have it posted on Corporate Compliance Insights, CCI site, which is a very good site established years ago with Maurice Gilbert and then Sarah Haddle. We love to support them as well. And if people want to reach you just to share ideas or get in contact with you for various reasons, what's the best way to reach you, Mary? Yeah, please feel free to friend me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on the messenger chat there. So that's an easy way. What I love about that is that if anyone changes jobs, you don't have to worry about finding their new email address. <laughs> that's just a continuous forum for being in yeah. touch. So it's one that I enjoy. Well, thank you again, Mary. And I would urge people to buy the book, read the book. Maybe we'll come up, all of us, with another 65 ideas. So hopefully it won't take me turning 65 for that to happen, but I'm sure you will, Mary. And congratulations on everything and have a terrific weekend coming up and we'll be in touch. Thank you for your kind words. You're such a delight, Mike. If you enjoyed this episode, the best way to support the show is by subscribing on your favorite listening platform. To learn more and connect with Michael Volkov, go to volkovlaw.com.